Well, it's good to be back with you again this week. Um, I wrestled with calling, I think last week Michael uh, opened this broader passage and and we have described it as a three-part sermon series, but quite truthfully it's, I guess, a five-part as we look at what we're doing in all of John 11 and Jesus is raising Lazarus from the tomb. Um, But last week, uh, as Jesus actually arrived in Bethany, uh, Michael talked about how Jesus interacted with Martha, and he engaged her mind with a truth statement. Um, she asked him a question, Jesus, where were you when I needed you? And he didn't answer that question with where, he answered the question with who he is. As he said, I am the resurrection and the life. And he turned the tables, and he asked her, do you believe this? Her response was her gospel confession. That was last week, Jesus uh, engaging our minds with truth. But today, in the second part of this series, we see that Jesus engages Mary. More than engaging her mind, he's engaging her emotions. And through that engagement with her emotions, he is drawing her to himself just as he drew Martha. We need to see both, and we need to rest in this today. So we're going to look to uh, verses 28 through 37. As we prepare to go there, let us uh, let's turn to the Lord in prayer. Would you bow with me? Lord Jesus, this word paints a picture of you, a real picture. We pray that as we look to your word, we would see, we would see you, we would know you, we would love you, and we would be transformed by you. Do this, we pray, in your name, amen. This is the inerrant and infallible word of God. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here, and he's calling for you. When she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And Jesus saw her weeping. And the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? This is the word of the Lord. Kevin Twitt is the Reformed University Fellowship, RUF, 
pastor at Belmont University in Nashville, and he's also uh, the leader and, and founder of uh, the music group Indelible Grace. Indelible Grace is the, is the, the, the worship team there at uh, Belmont's RUF. They've also had a broader impact in the church, uh, many of the songs that we sing, in fact, uh, from the depths of woe that we sang earlier, that arrangement came from Indelible Grace. It's a movement that, um, that Twit started that has a focus on rich hymnody for worship, both on the college campus and in the church. And, 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 and Kevin talks about this. And, he talks about his experience ministering to, to students on the campus. He said that they come to the campus and, and, and they experience this, this broad range of, of human emotion. The broad range of emotion that you and I experience. But many of these students come to the campus having experienced church backgrounds where, where much of their focus in worship has been putting on the equivalent of a happy face. There's been a very narrow view, particularly in their singing, of, uh, of human emotion. Now, most definitely, we are to rejoice in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. And quite frankly, many of us need to learn how to rejoice. <laughs> but if all we hear is the, the happy song... If that has been our understanding of the entirety of the Christian life, these, these students and many of us don't know what to do when suffering hits, and it does hit. And so, as Twit talks about this, this rich hymnody that, that, that sings, embraces the broad spectrum of human emotion, he says that one of the, the reasons that, that he ministers to students with that that hymnody is because that through those hymns, that it has the effect of making Jesus more believable and more beautiful. In many respects, this text does the exact same thing. This text paints the, a, a fuller picture of the person of Jesus Christ and of his range of emotion, and it makes Jesus more believable and beautiful. But the problem is this. When we think, oftentimes, of making someone or something more believable and beautiful, particularly beautiful, what do we think? We think in terms of makeup. <laughs> We've got to hide the wrinkles. We've got to hide what is actually more real and authentic. We've got to make those less beautiful realities go away. <laughs> but this text does just the opposite. This text presents Jesus as he truly is. This text presents Jesus as an authentic human. The God-man. It helps us to see Jesus and his authenticity. There is no mask in this text. And through this text, we see that Jesus is indeed believable and beautiful. We draw that out as we look to this interaction, this emotional interaction that, that Jesus has with Mary. We're going to learn something in this text about Jesus. And we're going to learn something about Jesus from the way that he approaches Mary, but also 
in the way that Mary approaches, approaches Jesus and he receives her approach. So let's begin with Mary's approach to Jesus. We, we met Mary's sister Martha last week. They are sisters and they share the same gene pool, but most all of us know that siblings can be vastly different. <laughs> and that's the case with Martha and Mary. Martha, she's the doer in the pair. Martha's the, the, the thinker. And so last week, as, as Michael preached that text, we saw that, that Martha approached Jesus and needed to talk it out. So Jesus reasoned with her and gave her the truth statement. This week is Mary. Mary's focus is on relational presence. She's a feeler. Mary emotes. Jesus called her. What does she do? She rose up quickly and ran to him. Let me add him. I need to be with him. Mary's not thinking all this out. She's not trying to think through her discussion. She's simply running to Jesus. She had been there weeping. The crowd saw her get up and go. And what did the text tell us they thought she was going to do? They, they thought that she was going to weep at the tomb. You put all that together and you begin to get a mental picture of Mary, don't you? She's the feeler. She's the weeper. What does she do when she gets to Jesus? Verse 32 tells us, and it's a profound statement. Verse 32 says that now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Mary did two things. Two things which to the reasoning person, to the thinking person, those two things seem to be utter opposites. They, they, they don't fit together. What were the two things that Mary did when she got to Jesus? Simultaneously, she fell at his feet in worship. And she questioned him. Where were you? Where were you, Jesus, when I needed you the most? How can she worship and question Jesus like that? How do those two, worship and questioning, fit together? Well, they don't. If Jesus is merely a, a distant deity. You see, a distant deity would demand worship. There's no place for questioning a distant deity. If, however, on the other hand, Jesus is, is merely her uh, personal servant who lives on equal footing with man, who, who lives on equal footing with Mary, certainly questioning would be appropriate, but there would be no reason for worship. And yet Mary does both. She falls prostrate before him in worship and she has the relational connection to question him this is the real authentic jesus it's a picture of him in his divinity and in his humanity it shows jesus as transcendent worthy of worship and eminent near and this is the picture of jesus with his beloved. And as she approaches him in this way, he receives her. In our confession 
and assurance earlier. We, we went through uh, Psalm 130. Psalm 130 is a lament psalm. Psalm of lament. And it's important for us to see through the psalms of lament that God is giving us in his word a model of how to approach him. God is telling us in his word how we can bring our heart's cry before him. You, you heard it. You sang it. As God says, this is how my people are to approach me with, with the cry of their heart. But to do so also in the context of redemption. Because there was a turn in Psalm 130. God invites that lament in the context of hope. We sang of, of the God who, who forgives our iniquities, who redeems us. We can lament before our God, and Mary is modeling lament in her worship and in her, in her heart's cry. It is a posture of faith and submission that she shows us, that tells us something about Jesus and how we can approach him with real emotion before our Savior. Not only do we learn something about Jesus in the way that Mary approaches him, but we also learn about his authentic beauty in the way he approaches Mary. We saw it first here in this text through his compassionate care. His compassionate care in the way that he called Mary. Did you notice in verse 30 that Jesus had not yet come into the village? Did you happen to wonder why that is just sort of as a an aside as you're studying the word ask questions of the word it's how we learn it's how we study why did jesus not yet go in to bethany well he had come to raise lazarus and lazarus tomb was outside of the city but he also came because he deeply loved lazarus and martha and Mary, he had come to bring glory to God through the miracle of raising Lazarus from the tomb, a miracle that we'll see next week. But he had also come to bring glory to God through his personal pastoral care of them. And guess what? There were still crowds in the village. We heard it. There were crowds there around Mary. And, and though Jesus is not uninterested in those crowds, he has come specifically for Martha and Mary and her brother Lazarus. And so he calls Mary to himself away from the town, away from the crowd, that he might have a private moment with her. He sends Martha. And Martha goes to her sister and says, The teacher is here and is calling for you. Can you imagine in the midst of your suffering, in the midst of your grief, hearing those words? Jesus is calling you. Jesus is calling you personally. In the midst of your hurt, he's calling you to come to him. Can you imagine hearing those words? It's a picture of his compassionate care for a person. Mary heard those words and she ran. 
She ran because Jesus cared enough to call her. But we also see in this text that, that he also cared enough to respond to her hurt. Verse 33 shows his response. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. It's almost as if the translators were uncomfortable with what's going on here in the original, and so they just had to tone it down a bit. I don't know if your Bible has a footnote. Mine does, and says that this word translated here in verse 33 is deeply moved, could also be translated as indignant. Same word is used to describe a snorting horse, an angry horse. When described of a person elsewhere in the New Testament, it describes one who, who is sternly warning or scolding another person. So put all this together and what you see is that Jesus is snorting mad. Talk about emotionality. Jesus is, is angry, but why is he angry? Is he angry at Mary's question when she, when she cries out to him, where were you when I needed you? Well, that wouldn't fit with the broader context of what Jesus is doing here with Mary and what he is doing in the broader chapter. So why is he so mad? Why is he boiling up with anger? Because he's in the presence of the enemy of enemies. He's in the presence of death. He is reminded there in the presence of death of the impact of the fall of sin and its impact on his beloved. Listen, th there is something important that we need to hear about this emotion from Jesus. If you, if you rewind a couple of weeks ago when we opened up John chapter 11, what did we hear about Jesus coming? We heard that he lingered before he came. He heard that Lazarus was ill, and so he waited two more days. And, and in that passage, we, we heard about the sovereignty of God, that this Jesus would be strong enough to allow or even bring about hard things in order to produce the good. And, and part of us hears that. We hear about the sovereignty of the Lord Jesus Christ. We hear that he lingered. And we wonder, is he a detached, unemotional chess player moving the pawn pieces around the board? Do you wonder that in your own suffering? Do you wonder that in your own grief? Jesus, where are you? Jesus, do you care? I come cancer. Any amens? Hate cancer. Is it an encouragement for you to hear that Jesus hates cancer? Not that he's impotent around cancer, not that it gets past him, but that he hates it. He hates the impact of the fall. That's what we see here in this text, that Jesus is snorting mad around the presence of death and the pain that it brings his people. 
And yet there's something else in verse 33 that we need to hear because not only is Jesus indignant at the presence of death, he was also greatly troubled. He was moved to sadness. I remember clearly the morning of 9-11. I was working um, as a banker and I was on the 30th floor of the bank building in downtown Atlanta and our our floor was it was a sort of a trading floor environment so there weren't offices there weren't even cubicles there were just kind of desks around the floor and and scattered throughout the floor there were TVs that were hanging from the ceiling because on most normal days we're watching the financial news but on that day every TV was streaming the scene from New York and so the fellow workers on the floors above and below all came to our floor and in standing room only we watched as the towers fell. I remember thinking we had friends who had flown up to New York that morning. We had uh, colleagues in other banks who worked in those buildings. And there was this this combination of emotion that just washed over me and everyone in that room it was this feeling of deep sadness mixed with an intolerable anger it was both and it had to be both In the presence of destruction, in the presence of despair, in the presence of suffering, don't you want, don't you need your Savior to feel both? Don't you need your Savior to feel sadness and anger? Jesus did. He had both. And there must be both. Compassion without outrage reduces to mere sentiment. Yet outrage without compassion or grief tends to harden heart. Jesus had both. He entered into the pain of his beloved Mary. I find that verse 35 is one of the most pastorally encouraging verses in all of scripture. It points to the emotionality of Jesus. Jesus knew what he was about to do. He knew that in just a few moments he would raise Lazarus from the dead. He knew that this this suffering, this grief was temporary. That there would be a time when it would pass. But he also knew that it was real. He felt it. And he entered in. Jesus did not minimize Mary's pain. Jesus wept. The Son of God shed real tears tears over the reality of death and the pain that it caused his people does that truth encourage you jesus is not a detached deity he is not an unmoved chess player we know the rest of the story but we also know that he lingered we know that he allowed or brought about the hard things in order to produce the good How does it feel to you to know that he felt? There is a media personality that I am familiar with who has a saying, facts don't have feelings. 
possible. Strictly speaking, a fact may not have a a feeling, but people do. And so does Jesus. And he feels with his people. And and it gives us a picture of his humanity, of his authenticity, of his compassionate care, of his relatableness. There is, uh, I believe, a very simple outline to this text. Jesus was real. Mary was real. (laughs) You and I can and should be real with Jesus. This this picture of the real Jesus is a picture that draws us in to real relationship with him. It, It calls us to authentically relate to the authentic Jesus. And so where do you struggle with that? Where do you struggle with with authentically relating to the person of Jesus Christ? And for many of us, it's it's in prayer. Secular people uh, like the notion of prayer. They don't have a concept of it. They don't know how to word it. And so oftentimes you'll hear secular people talk about, well, I'm throwing up some good thoughts for you. What does that mean? He's throwing up some thoughts into the air. But the reality is oftentimes Christians can do something very similar. We utter some prayers as if we're kind of uttering them out into the air. As if the actual practice of us saying or thinking a thought would do something. Some of us, on the other hand on just offering thoughts up into the air, we, we take the opposite approach and, and actually try and perform through our prayers. Take on a prayer voice, a prayer language that would sound a lot like we were on stage performing for a person. But the picture of the real Jesus tells us that we're talking to a real person who has real emotions, who loves with real compassion and so how might that picture that we see here in John chapter 11 how might it change your prayer life if you actually came to believe and grasp the fact that the one that we're praying to is the one that we're united to in a union so close that it is in fact the very model of our marriages we pray to a person a person who loves a person who cares might that change your prayer life? It might make it more raw. might make it more directed. might make it more vulnerable. It might make our prayers more real. How about worship? Do you authentically relate to Jesus in worship? Do you relate to him emotionally with the full range of emotions? Is it helpful to see Jesus angry and weeping? Is it helpful to see Mary worshiping and questioning? Maybe for some of us it does. But others of us still struggle with authentically relating to Jesus in worship. Why is that? Well, for many of us it's the fear of man. What would others think if I allowed myself to to truly feel Feel all that I'm feeling in the context of worship. Others might think differently of me. Some of us struggle to authentically relate in worship because we're 
actually striving for perfection. We've got to say it right. We've got to sing it right. And others of us are just putting on a mask going through motions. Maybe worship is secondary to us. We're distracted by the things of the world. Those things of the world are either more enticing or, or more fearful for us. And so they're bigger in our eyes. So ultimately for all of us, the issue of of relating to Jesus in the context of worship is the issue of knowing Jesus and seeing him as he really is, the God-man. And that picture is one that redirects our hearts away from the fear of the man, fear of man, to the blessed fear of the Lord. <clears throat> Listen, this is a three-part sermon series. Last week we saw that Jesus engages our minds with truth. Next week, we're going to see that Jesus has the power to defeat death. And we will get there, but we're not going to go so fast that we miss this picture of his compassionate pastoral care. I wrestled this week with how to close this sermon. I think what I've come to realize is sometimes the best way to close a sermon is to leave it open. <laughs> to leave it open because Jesus lingered. We saw that at the beginning of, of John 11. And because he lingered, there was suffering. There was suffering for Martha. There was suffering for Mary. And there most certainly was suffering for Lazarus. But guess what? There are times in our lives when he lingers us too. And because Jesus lingers in our lives, we experience suffering as well. Yes, there's resolution for Mary and Martha and Lazarus. We're going to get to that next week as Jesus spoke in to the tomb, as he raised Lazarus from the dead. It will be a beautiful display of power, but that's for next week. There will also be resolution for us when one day, someday, we will share in Jesus' resurrected glory standing in his presence. There will be that day of resolution when our tears will be wiped away. Someday. But what will we do with the lingering now? What will we do in the suffering now? Left to our imagination, we wonder, is Jesus either strong but uncaring or is he just weak? But praise be to God, we don't have to be left to our imagination because we have the word of God, the unchanging word of Jesus Christ. And in this word, we find that Jesus is neither strong but uncaring or weak. He is the God-man. He is the God-man who demands our worship, and he is the God-man who invites our relational connection, and he is worthy of both because he is the one who first entered into our lives and experiences, and that is the real Jesus. That is the Jesus we see in John 11. He is the resurrection and the life. And just as he asked Martha and just as he implied with Mary, I put before us today the question, you believe in him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this picture that you have given us of your son, 
our Savior, Jesus Christ. And I ask again that you would accompany this message with the illuminating, enlightening presence of your Spirit that we might see and grasp this picture. That we might cling to Him. Do this we ask in Christ's name. Amen.